0: Well, welcome to another episode of DevOps Unbound. We're talking about chaos engineering, very hot topic, and uh, we've got a couple of experts here on our panel today. Let me first start by uh, reminding you that DevOps Unbound is a twice monthly uh, recorded on TechSong TV. You can check us out and watch us there. We're all past episodes are also available on DevOpsUnbound.com. And uh, we also do a live roundtable once a month uh, in a webinar format. But it's similar to this, but the audience can participate with us in a very engaging way. So we love that you're here either on a pre record or, or with us live on, on roundtable events. And of course, we'd love to uh, thank our wonderful sponsors from TriCentus. They are sponsors of this series and uh, been really great. Uh, Chantel and Jody have been really great to work with in planning some of the topics and guests and things that we do. So appreciate Pricentis being a good partner. Well, let's get to our topic. We're going to talk about chaos engineering. Uh, before I do a little bit of an intro to that, let's have um, our two panelists intro themselves. Tammy, would you start? Uh, tell us a little bit about you and you know, who you work for, kind of work that you do?
1: Sure thing. Thanks, Mitch. Hi, everyone. My name is Tammy Bryant-Buto and I work at Gremlin. I'm a Principal Site Reliability Engineer. I've been at Gremlin for four years. I get to do a lot of chaos engineering. So Gremlin is actually a chaos engineering platform. I do a lot of work of Gremlin on Gremlin. And uh, actually, really interestingly, over the last few years, I've got to see how So many different companies practice chaos engineering uh, Mm -hmm. because they're our customers. So like JPMC, Target, Walmart, um, so many more from all over the world. And yeah, bring a lot of interesting um, experiences along with me everywhere I go, which is fun. And before this, I worked at Dropbox as a site reliability engineering manager. And I was also at DigitalOcean and um, the National Australia Bank. So I've been working in the reliability space for 12 years now.
0: Fantastic. Amazing experience. So we appreciate you here being here to share it with us. How about you, Paul?
2: Uh, so, again, my name is Paul. Uh, I work with DrySennis um, in incubation and in customer engineering, um, especially with NeoLoad, the load testing product that they have, the platform there. Uh, so... Yes, there are a lot of names that we actually share between Kremlin and, <laughs> and Tricentis. Uh, and just in the Fortune 1000, it's very hard to not be bumping elbows, especially around communities of practice. So, you know, other communities of practice that I tend to uh, be part of are my local Boston DevOps and DevOps Days. Uh, I organize the DevOps Days Boston event. Um, I also run some of my own events around observability and uh, security uh, just kind of as sort of sandbox to give people space to new people space to to do that in a vendor agnostic way. Uh, so, aside from really appreciating some of these kind of conversations, uh, it's not surprising that we find ourselves not so much stepping on each other's toes, but finding ourselves in the same rooms, right? Talking with similar people uh, because they have particular problems and challenges, and they're looking at you know how do we move from a traditional model to a more modern model what's good about certain uh, approaches and, and technologies and what's bad about them and how do we need to right fit this stuff? So I get to speak with a lot of our, especially Fortune 100 customers who are in the place where uh, from a maturity perspective, from a, you know, they have the building blocks of all the other things that are good enough to get to the point where they're actually able to start start talking about chaos or maybe resiliency is a little bit more corporately convenient to say it.
0: (laughs) In some circles, that's a little more palatable, right? Yeah. (laughs) Well, and also folks may notice, my co-host, Alan Schimmel, who's also CEO of Textron Group, is absent today. He's on hiatus. Well, he's he's on special assignment. He's at another venue doing some other things. So he'll be back with us on, on our next episode, of course. So chaos engineering. Uh, I know it never happens, but sometimes these we throw about these terms. People adopt them. People make them their own and it turns into something it's not, you know, co-opt them. And oftentimes if you're approaching this as a new topic um, or, you know, something you're looking to learn about is like, well, what is it? And uh, I know you all have been doing this for for a number of years. Maybe we could, we give folks a working definition of chaos engineering. Tammy, you want to start?
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah. The one that I like to use is uh, thoughtful planned experiments designed to reveal improvements in our systems so and when you think about it like that this helps you understand how it's changed over the last 10 years um chaos Monkey was created 10 years ago now and that was more about like randomly shutting down ec2 instances like very narrow small view of chaos engineering it's grown so much over the last 10 years so i like that thoughtful planned experiments where we're looking to make improvements
2: yeah, that's, that, I can't do much better on that other than to add to the, the at the end of that statement was systems and systems as, as a DevOps nerd, right? Systems are the multi-body problem, which is the people, process and technology. So, you know, we, we oftentimes think that chaos engineering is all about our systems and the resiliency of our systems, but it has a lot to do as well with proactively understanding how to prevent or how to how to flesh out a plan you know, this idea that you had in your mind about how you would respond to certain things. Well, let's actually try that. And maybe we don't just try that straight up in prod uh, right off the bat. So
0: mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's It's funny that you mentioned 10 years ago, <laughs> chaos monkey. Sometime. Yeah. It hasn't been that long. Wow. But that sort of started the conversation and us thinking about that. It's this chaotic, send something out there that's going to randomly try to break things before they break and find where those flaws are. And while that's an element of it, you know, your definition, Tammy, you know, also puts more of an SRE engineering mindset to this too, right? Let's, we need to be able to measure and find out where we have the flaws. Cause just cause something breaks, doesn't mean that's where the, the break fix needs to happen. Um, I'm curious, and also, why does this overlap so much with SRE? You could argue it overlaps or intersects, works closely with observability, um, some of the testing that work that you do. There's a lot of things that kind of live in this space together. How, do, how, how would you make sense of that? How do you fit that together for people? Uh, Paul, why don't you go?
2: Um, well, I think some some sense of in the old days right mm-hmm. it used to be there were different people for different reasons and there was a process and it took a long time and in many ways that was because there were a lot of things are kind of batching up um you know 15 years ago continuous motions were not the primary default and so there were large big batches now we're in a lot of small uh and especially with distributed systems right, especially with distributed architectures, fantastic. We solved for a problem, which is how do we be able to update these things independently? But as it turns out, they're not really independent, especially when you ship them up to a cloud. Now, sudden you introduce network latencies that you didn't expect. When you change architectures from sort of synchronous to asynchronous, right? That, that really changed the equation of what you need to ask. So what we find is that it's not good enough to be in a silo. It's not good enough to have siloed knowledge in the organization. Um, it's not just enough to, let's say, run a performance test and barf somebody a result, a report that has nothing to do with what was the impact to the server's services, right? And and also, even on a perfect day, if that happens, we're still not necessarily we're still only testing a certain amount of the distributed happy path, as I would call it, Um, where where resiliency engineering comes into play is when we start to say there there needs to be a way to not just not inject faults, but uh, to Tammy's point to be able to hypothesize what happens if and when. And so, you know, in a strict performance um, and reliability engineering, like when I go and engage customers uh, and we have these discovery conversations that exposes what's their practices today and where they want to move, one of the things that I find oftentimes not in their purview is the architectural diagrams. Now, architectural diagrams start somewhere and then, you know, stale. And so you have to kind of update those with what's the reality of the system a year after you shipped it or so on and so forth. But uh, even just being able to draw the boxes on the whiteboard and say, this is the ideal way that the thing is set up. Right, you can get these visio diagrams or these, you know, SketchUp diagrams or whatever from certain people. Well, that's step one. Step two is to actually look at that diagram and go, where are the most likely bottlenecks? Where are the most likely points of uh, failure? Or where is the least amount of resilience? And you can, you can start. You need to get information on the table, right? Before you can make any kind of informed hypothesis, even before. I mean, there's there's things that resiliency and chaos engineering are great for. And then there's a lot of things that it's not. Same thing with where I come from, the old load testing background, right? There are some things that it's great for and some things that it's not. But taking a sense of give the information up front to kind of say, what is the holistic picture? To answer your question, Mitch, I think the reason why we're blending and why this sort of overlaps with SREs is because in the old siloed model, nobody cared about the big picture maybe except for the architecture person, or worse, maybe the operations people that are dealing with fires in production then trying to retroactively find time with the product teams, only to find that they don't have time because they're busy shipping new features and have no error budgets, no time for tech debt, debt, architectural debt and stuff like that. So it becomes a big cluster, a fluster uh, cluster. Uh, mm-hmm. when, when you have that sort of, uh, those kind of mentalities in, and I, I kind of think, uh, SREs is almost like, um, mini product, um, d- uh, like product managers is one way to say it, but that's, that's got a specific word, um, managing directors, right. Of, of so, how me, this thing me, is actually going to run really pause well.
0: that for a second. Cause I'm going to jump in SRE. And hey, Tammy, I want you to get a chance. Cause you've, you've said a lot there, Paul, yeah. and, uh, we want to unpack some of this. So jump in Tammy.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Like, so I'm a CNCF ambassador, and one of the really interesting things is if you look at the uh, CNCF landscape, it's really cool. You know, you can see all of the cloud native technologies on there. Chaos engineering right now fits under observability and analysis. Um, and you know, to me, like what I would love to see in the future is actually that there's a reliability section where we would have tools that are like chaos engineering, but also incident management. Um, alerting, I I do feel like these actually fit better under the reliability banner, but that doesn't exist yet. Like it's actually what we're talking about is very much like future, like forward-thinking types of works. It's actually quite new. Even though Chaos Monkey was created 10 years ago, um, chaos engineering has only really started to become much more popular over the last, I would say two years. And, you know, when I was talking to people four years ago, they didn't even have monitoring and um, alerting observability tools that they were using regularly or that they trusted worked. Now that's changed like four years from then. So that's my thoughts there of like where chaos engineering fits in, in terms of like SREs, you know, how come SREs practice chaos engineering or are fans of it? You know, for me, the reason I do it and I've done it for many years now is because for me, it was the fastest way to be able to make an improvement. And that's what you're always trying to do as an SRE because you're so busy, you know, with all of the other work that you have to do. You're on call. Maybe you're getting paged a lot when you first join a team. You're helping give advice to teams about how what best practices are for how to set up everything that they're doing. You're doing automation work. So whenever you can find a way to make an improvement to like move the needle that you can actually measure and show everyone like, Hey, like we did this failure injection work. We ran all these experiments. And, you know, one of my big wins was I got a 10 X reduction in incidents within three months because of practicing chaos engineering identifying what we needed to fix and then just getting those things fixed. Even if it's like a temporary fix until we can do the permanent fix, at least we're not getting paged like constantly. So that's like why I think SREs love chaos engineering. But then the other thing I would mention is uh, that over the years, it's kind of changed like who is practicing chaos engineering. So I would say like four years ago, it was definitely pretty much all SREs that I talked to that were doing chaos engineering And they either were doing it as part of their role within the SRE team, or they'd actually created another team called the chaos engineering team. And it was SREs doing chaos engineering as a full-time job. And that's all they did. And um, now though, what I see is we still have lots of SREs doing chaos engineering even more than before. There's those dedicated, chaos engineering teams, but there's also QA teams that are practicing chaos engineering. That's really popular now. And performance engineering teams. And I'm actually seeing product managers say, we want to do chaos engineering for our products that we're launching. So, yeah, it's like expanded, which is exciting.
0: It really is interesting. And it's a topic that's been coming up, I don't know, the last couple of months because observability is so much in front of everybody chaos engineering, all these SRE, all these topics is, you know, I was thinking about chaos monkey and you're mentioning that that was really just a representation of the world we're now living in and not chaos monkey itself, but everything is changing all the time. And you can't do manual things. You know, it can't be manual break fix all the time anymore because the environment's changed by the time you might go to break fix it. Right. Um, and, and so, using these using automated tools and engineering approaches both elevates the operational role to be more than you know up down kind of monitoring kind of things and really getting into uh, how do we help improve the reliability of our systems. Um, do you think our organizations really adopting, more of a seriousness around operations and what this means because of observability and chaos engineering. Is that really happening out there in the real world as opposed to here in video land where we'd like to talk about this stuff?
2: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the shared customers that uh, Gremlin and, and Tricentis have, I can't, I, I shouldn't probably name them, but the um, they're, they're well in the Fortune 50 and they are in the large healthcare and insurance provisioning. Uh, vertical. and their team uh, of performance and reliability people have been around. They know how to use their tools. They uh, push forward in terms of how do we automate some of this stuff. Um, there's a lot of appetite and interest of you know the 500 plus teams. Of product uh, teams that they actually serve um, to move away from the sort of center of excellence, you know, attitude or you know the, the 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 pool of knowledge only over here to start building those into automated processes. So I was working with um, them about four months ago to make sure that there are proper sanity checks in terms of performance uh, before they actually move on to what the what a big test. Okay, well a big test, but also moving on in those big tests and done in a frequent basis is the gremlin, the the chaos injection that allows them to actually prove that just because a couple of servers go down, and this is interesting, it's not just about scale. It's not just about the infrastructure, right? Maybe at, at the beginning chaos monkey and those tools were all about just testing and proving that infrastructure could come back reliably. But what they actually do, and a lot of our customers actually do this with NeoLoad, um, is not just it's it's not just about putting pressure on your systems. It's about handling these long running tasks, especially in insurance and healthcare. There are claims processing that takes upwards of minutes to go through all these like back uh, asynchronous queues and stuff like that um, from from system to system. And what they need to do is they need to push that workload into the system. Maybe even use a tool to generate data, push the workload into the system monitor the little points of how the data is going through the system, and then actually at the end verify that regardless of what happened because uh, Gremlin was engaged to take some nodes or some servers down, that 100% of the claims that were supposed to go through the system are actually through the system. I would consider that more like data regression, right? But it is a reliability factor and a resiliency factor of your system to be able to say, there is a standard set of things that we provide as a community of practice, not a center of excellence, a community of en- enablement and practice. And they, we've already built patterns in pipelines that help you take advantage of some of that service without having to know a ton about it, there is a standard set of things that we do in the the default chaos injections. There's a standard set of things we do to put pressure on the system or to help you push all your data through the system and verify it afterwards. And those two things have to go hand in hand. Mitch, I think to your point, doing things manually, right? There's no such thing as a useful chaos experiment where you're just opening the browser and trying it as one person. You need statistical significance, whether you do that in production and potentially, you know, there's, there's issues there that I'd, I'd actually want to ask Tammy about a little bit later. Or whether you're doing this in a pre-prod environment, it's still teaching you things. It's still helping you build that. Okay, we didn't know about that. Let's fix the architecture diagram. Okay, we didn't know that it's going to engage those alerting systems. Oops. And now our storage mechanisms, uh, the people on our storage team are freaking out. And they didn't even know why they were freaking out until we started talking with them. That has to be planned. And and you have to have emotional and situational intelligence about your organization, especially if it's a bigger organization, before you start doing these things.
0: That's a great question, um, which I was going to ask also is, do we do this in production? Is Is that where the real benefit comes from? Do we do this in test and in sandboxed environments? What do we learn differently from both? I totally get the, you know, we don't want the security group freaking out when it looks like something's been compromised because <laughs> we brought, you know, we found some buffer control overflow issue. Um, but we do need to know that production is resilient too. I mean, Tammy, wh- where, where does this belong? What do you do in each of those environments?
1: Yeah, I, I always like to say um, practicing chaos engineering in production, it's a journey. It's, it's not something that people do on day one ever and you know the way to get there successfully is that you do start in lower level environments my recommendation actually like i love paul's term community of practice what what i like to do is like tell everyone like learn how to do chaos engineering first Mm -hmm. in a demo environment like not even actually your um, applications with your data, like just have a demo application. You know, you can get a great one off GitHub called Bank of Anthos that Google created, and it's an internet banking application. That's an awesome one. You know, we can share the link to that, and just inject some failure there because it runs on Kubernetes. You can learn more about how Kubernetes works, doesn't work in different situations, and. Gremlin has a lot of different attack types so there's like networking related attacks resource attacks state attacks those are the categories for networking it might be like let's inject packet loss let's um let's increase latency resources, disk, IO, memory, CPU. So there's a lot of different things you can do. And often it's also about like planning the experiment, combining different types of attacks for different amounts of times. One of my favorite attacks is called a black hole where you make a service disappear and then you see what happens to its dependencies. And like Paul said as well, it's not just about like, oh, the service went away. Like, did it come back? It's also like How does that look to the user when a user's logged into internet banking and suddenly the balance reader isn't working? Can they send deposits? Can they make payments? Like, do they see error messages? What actually is their experience? And I think, like, really great SREs, you know, they do think about the user experience. You're really focused on the customer. And that's like an amazing skill because I've been on tons of incidents where we were getting so many support tickets from customers saying, like, my data is not there. My data's disappeared and it's not. Wasn't that, it was like the thumbnail preview service wasn't working. Mm-hmm. So that's why I like thinking through like, how does this impact the user is so important. So I always recommend thinking about it from that perspective. And like, I generally say to get to production, it takes companies several years. Most companies, I'd say it takes them about 2 to 3 years to start practicing chaos engineering in production. And I think that's totally fine. Like that makes a lot of sense. And it's good to have that as a big milestone date. Like we did our first ever chaos engineering in production. This is what we learned. You know, we improved our mean time to recovery by this much. Um, so, yeah, I've got lots of cool customers that I've seen do that. And it's really exciting to like celebrate it as well. It's not easy to do. It's a challenge. Yeah
0: of a crawl walk run to use that you know familiar analogy but it makes a lot of sense um what what do you see is there is there um a- kind of a typical stages of evolution that people go through i know they're not probably formally named but what does that journey look like so if somebody is in the middle of it they kind of know where they are what might be next or if they're starting saying i have no idea what this might look like can i can i get at least some clue of where i'm headed with this either one of you have some thoughts on that
1: yeah. I think what, what Paul mentioned there as well, like about um how he's working with a customer that's using Tricentus and Gremlin, like that, that story is like really common. I would say that folks start a community practice. They help everyone learn, how do I do chaos engineering? Then they try and think through like, what experiments do we want to do here within our organization? How do we automate that? And when you think about automation of chaos engineering, there are different ways to do that. Most common way is actually integrating it into your CI/CD pipelines. So we see a lot of people doing that. Like, for example, with Jenkins. Jenkins is very widely used by a lot of big enterprises. And that way you can just run all of your um, suite of chaos engineering experiments. People sometimes call it a reliability gauntlet, which I, I like that term. I think it's pretty cool. That <laughs> <laughs> makes it so fun. And it's like, you got to pass the reliability gauntlet. Did you do it or not? And then Ooh. they report back on the results in an automated way. So when you come in, you know, the next morning or that afternoon, you can see I need to fix these issues because it didn't pass and I'm not able to get to production until I pass all of these um, experiments. And then the other way you can do it is by scheduling um game days to run but in an automated way so game days is another great topic i really love them once you run a game day once you can then automate it and you can say like let's do the dns game day the dns failover game day every wednesday it's just going to happen and if something goes wrong then you know that's great we'll go and try and fix those issues but that's the journey that i see definitely like start small gradually expand your blast radius of teams and experiments and, you know, the impact, um, that you're working on. Like I, I never see anyone be like, let's start really big and then go to smaller. <laughs> <later."> Caution
0: to <laughs> the wind. Let's go for the, yeah, yeah. the yeah. whole inch a lot of here. <laughs> yeah, to that, bring it all that,
2: that has a lot <laughs> to do too with like the amount of antibodies for failure and risk and security and all the things that are in these larger companies. I I, I only focus on larger companies in this conversation because they they oftentimes have problems at scale. They have problems of systems at scale, legacy code as opposed to just Greenfield unicorn sneezing rainbows kind of stuff. (laughs) Um, they also have a lot of compliance and um, and regulation that they have to deal with, and th- th- these things aren't. I don't consider them as bogging down. I, I consider them as grown up problems. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, we can argue about the finer points of you know what what specific PCI compliance thing you don't agree with, but ultimately, like this is this is business, and there's reasons for Sarbanes Oxley and stuff like that. So when you have to live in that world, um, yet you you have these potential new technologies or approaches, it's really important not just to, I mean, you know, Mitch, you you mentioned before we started that it was like, we don't want this to just be a big agreement fest, but I'm having a hard time disagreeing with anything Tammy says. (laughs) And so if there's any kind of way to sort of um, challenge uh, Tammy, what you just said, not the specific points of it, but to take it forward and say, okay, well, You know, the DNS game day, right? Anytime you want to do something, you might get to a point where something is scalable in a community of practice. That's a great point, but that doesn't make sure it happens on a regular basis. There have to be people, like I'm saying, an SRE mindset that's almost like a managing director of this particular, you know, and you have your portfolio of projects, one of those projects is being the lead on making sure this thing is open available good space safe space and it happens right same thing with book clubs. same thing with you know other community of practice uh, enablement sessions that takes effort and so my my question or my challenge to to all of us is try to figure out um how do we how do we make sure that we uh, empower people to sell that up mm-hmm. right what are some what are a couple of easy takeaways that can be like not, not only do we wordsmith and, and move away from this sort of attack, you know, and like, this is, these are faults and we're going to definitely do it in production. How do we move the language to an appropriate way? I think things are happening there, which is good, but also how do we arm and empower people who see the value from a technical perspective, but don't necessarily know how to sell that throughout the organization? Um, what would you say to that Tammy?
1: Yeah. So actually, I mean, I get asked this a lot from folks. How do I learn chaos engineering and how do I explain it to others? And so what I did, because I wanted to make that very scalable, like how I would help people learn that. So I created a certificate, actually. So if you go to gremlin.com slash certification, you can take a free certificate and it only takes 30 minutes, but that's going to really give you all of the information for like, how do I really get buy-in from my leadership team, from my greater... Um, Org to be able to start practicing chaos engineering so everyone understands like what's the ROI? but also to make it inspiring and exciting and to help you learn how to do it technically. Like that's a really good certificate. And then if you, you know, do well on that, you pass. There's also the second level, which is the professional level. That's definitely a lot harder and you're going to have to be someone who's practicing chaos engineering regularly to be able to pass that one. But I would say like I'd recommend that, you know, you go and get certified because that will help you understand how to communicate chaos engineering and all of the benefits to other people. The other thing I did too, which I can share a link for is i made a demo confluence wiki site actually so So many people were like showing me these chaos engineering wikis they'd made. And I was like, these are really cool. Like I'm just going to collect all the best parts and put it into this one wiki. And then I actually made it public. So anyone across the world can go and look at this like public chaos engineering wiki. I love it. So, yeah. And it's got a maturity model and everything. So that sort of stuff is pretty cool. And we're continuously expanding on what we add into this wiki. So it's like a, an open source wiki for everybody.
2: So Very that's the, cool. that's that's one of the true signs of of an SRE mindset. Right? <laughs> it's not just do the work, and this is there's no superhero capes, right? <laughs> that the anti pattern superhero. No, it's sharing and exploring an area together, and yeah. and kind of helping people like push pushing people forward without necessarily. Yeah, that's super cool. Um, what one thing I remember too is um, oh, I do a similar thing with performance and reliability uh, testing and engineering, and um, it often comes up is how do you go from like zero to something, or how do you go from like five miles an hour to like 30 miles an hour or 50 miles an hour. And it is a journey, right. And it takes time. But one of the paradigms that I use, I go back to Kent Beck, he has this uh, notion of the 3X model, explore, expand, extract, which has more to do with, you know, finding good ideas and capitalizing on them and being the leader in X and whatnot. And the explore, expand, extract is, you know, in the explore phase, you're, you're digging a lot of little holes to find where the gold is. And it's the same thing when you're starting out trying to build communities of practice. Um, the emotional intelligence is number one, that you have to start small and find where the actual appropriate is, not something that is cool to you. but something that's really cool to multiple people in your organization, right? At TriCenis as part of uh, incubation engineering, I'm doing a lot of that. And what I find is to have that idea seeded through many people in the organization and get their feedback. But also if it ends up actually being a great idea to be able to actually now have, you know, sort of preempted champions for that thing, because they've, they've started to, to know and aware of that. That's one step in the explore phase. Expand is now you have something scalable. Now, what do we have to do to put in place it from a program thinking perspective to make sure that there's at least a certain amount of time where this is executed predictably at, for people? executed effectively for looking back and saying, how did this program work? And are we capturing the right ROI metrics? And is it really working or is it not? Does it need adjustment? And then the extract phase is mostly like, we've we've got our stuff together. We know how this works and it can expand to the entire, that 500 teams kind of situation that I was talking about. That takes a little time. Um, but But one last part about that paradigm is in my incubation work, Right. We're, I, I give people time box amount of time if the, an engineer comes to me with a good idea. Right. It, maybe it's chaos. Right. They, they want to go chaos testing, something like that. Right. Fine. Um, let's, let's time box that so that it's not like this is going to last forever, good project management 101, right? Let's also, if you're a great engineer, but you don't know how to sell this upwards and get alignment and agreement with your leadership or with our leadership internally, or with somebody else or with the customer, I can put my business analyst hat on and be your business analyst for hire, for rent for a little time and work together. But the point there is that at the same time, you're evolving the actual technical elements of the thing. you always have to be situationally and organizationally uh, aware of how to how to sell that, how to grow that out and, and figure out how to report that in such a way where people go, yeah, sure, carry on, right? This looks good as opposed to what are you doing? No, I'm sorry, you know So that, that part of it is just you, you've got to pair both both sides of this. There's a social and business, story there's a technical side story and I, I haven't yet found one single person that can always do that in the 45 60 hour work weeks that we have you usually have to pair with somebody else to bring that forward so
0: so so let me since we have a good amount of agreement i'll play the i'll play the counterpointer uh, let me present the um curmudgeon skeptical manager you've got to convince to do this. Not that I've ever been that person, you know, of course not. (laughs) That's a whole nother conversation. Um, you know, you can imagine going, let me go to my boss and say, we need to practice chaos engineering. And say, well, yeah. We need to go play on the highway too. Um, you know, is there a sort of a, how do you, if you've got skeptics and I imagine there's a few people out in the audience who, who've got a tough road to hoe to kind of get to that point where it really is embraced. Do you, going at this as a, a reliability low testing problem we want to start to work on, you know, h- how do you do that without kind of being sneaky about it? Or do you have to be sneaky about it?
1: Yeah, I think I'm, um, I have a lot of thoughts on this because I've definitely been able to help folks do it and I've done it myself. So usually like what I like to do is like talk about people who've already done this and had great success. So often like, you know, before I had done it myself and I wanted to convince other people, um, I would just say things like, hey, like, you know, the National Australia Bank that I worked at, um, they were actually the first bank in the whole world to practice chaos engineering. And like here's an article that they actually wrote up that was released. It's in the news. It was like a journalist interviewed them about it. They shared all of their wins that they had from doing it. This is like a long time ago in 2012. So being able to like share something like that, then people go, oh, wow, a bank is doing this. Like, and if banks are doing it, then, you know, I feel like everyone else should do it because they're always the ones that are more cautious than anybody else. And they have all these compliance um, requirements and regulation requirements. But the way to think about it too is I feel like chaos engineering is a nice evolution on disaster recovery. So if you also link it back to disaster recovery and business continuity planning, then people really understand it. They're like, Oh, like, so, you know, I did my, do my quarterly DR. Activities instead of doing it just quarterly, let's do it more regularly. Let's make sure we pass DR when we're actually being audited. So you can use chaos engineering to proactively make sure you're going to pass it when the DR day comes. So I like that. The other thing that I do at the moment is in 2018, um, a really amazing book was published called Accelerate, and that book is awesome. It talks about how to practice game days, Um, and it's also based on really amazing data that Gene Kim collected with Nicole Forsgren and Jez Humble based on all of the Puppet DevOps reports. So they talk there about how actually stability is so important. You need to have stability first to be able to have speed. So, you know, speed depends on stability. So I definitely recommend that folks should check out that book. But that's basically all that I say. And then everyone's like, okay, you convince me, like, let's do it now.
0: <laughs> kind of educate educate ourselves, right? Of what yeah. people are already doing. And, you know, there's a body of knowledge, a body of work we're building on. We're not just like, let's go, we'll, you know, whimsically try this out. Exactly. Any thoughts Paul, from your perspective?
2: Yeah, Mitch. Uh, So going back to the original sort of situation that you, you painted, which is, okay, I I think we really need to do this thing. You walk into your boss's office and we really need to do this thing and they go, well, you know, we've got a million other things and this is kind of scary. And, you know, we could do a lot of things, but we're not going to do that. Well, that's, you've already walked into your own brick wall. You created a brick wall for yourself. Um, I would say it's, it's not about trying to take the technical tack. It's not about trying to take the, the culture tack. It just step back and, I mean, um, use, use a framing like situation impact result, you know, look, look at the business and go, wow, there's there's quite a few one incidents in this particular project. Okay. Well, that is directly affecting business. So you don't even have to know the numbers about that to know that that's a pain that is painful for people to go through in reviews, right? When they have to stand up and say, why, why is this going down? Or why is this not getting out to production as fast as it should be those are very painful moments for vps of engineering for product managers right and so not to poke them right in their pain spot but to say okay let's start from that that space that actually impacts the business or means something to the business then let's walk back and go that, that was that's the situation what's the impact to the business and the result is that we're we're fighting fires more than we're spending time doing other meaningful things and so you can do that situation impact result. That's just a framing you can put on things to start to think more like user, more, more like business, um, mm-hmm. and then start to go, okay, in that landscape of what I know about mat- material impact to the company or the business or the organizational or the division that I'm working for, how would I work this thing that I feel is the right thing to do, the, the thing that, you know, is it's not just cool and shiny. There's, there's reason for this. How do I work that into that conversation? Uh, I, I used that framing with, um, fortune 15 ish, uh, just yesterday when we were doing a discovery session, right. And then to be able to kind of pivot that across what's the current what's the current situation and what's the desired situation. And you can use situation impact result on a current situation as well as on a desired situation and get a story out there that most people you can, you hand that to your boss and you go, well, this is, this is actually a set of problems that we experience. We are, we are losing velocity points. We are losing story points to this, whether you're in the engineering or the product management space that matters. The impact of this is X, right? I talked with somebody else and they validated that this is some serious impact. This is the quantification of that. And then the result is, X. And so the desired situation, if we want to walk backward, situation impact result is result impact situation, is that we actually have to go, if we want this result, we have to have this kind of impact. And therefore we have to have this kind of situation. And oh, by the way, that situation includes resiliency in our thinking. So it's, it's just a way to construct a story that other people can comprehend instead of just starting with the tools and starting with like, I agree, success stories, Tammy, are very important. Right. That's the evidence. That's proof. Right. But proof points way down at the bottom before people are even TLDR it for me. Right. Like, how does this affect me? How does this affect people above me? Right. What if we don't do this? That has to be there, I think, um, for most people to get it right off the bat.
0: I, I sometimes coach people. And one of the things I offer is that virtually every manager wants two things. They want people who solve problems and they like to make decisions, right? <laughs> they don't just go to meetings. They like to make decisions. Yeah. So you can imagine, you know, to what you said, Tammy about, you know, Hey, we're struggling to meet DR. Like the last two have been hell to yeah. get through, you know, sort of our own, um, you know, our own unicorn project or whatever. Um, or, or it's, you know, we're having some problems with this part of, our it. it's just like the third time we've seen this happen. I have some ideas, um some things that we can try and share if we wanted to go down that path and see if some of this will help us so you can come to the somebody with i I, we have this problem not news to you i know you're struggling to try to figure out how to solve it and uh, i've got some ideas maybe some solutions and we can try it um and and see what kind of results we get well we're we're close to the end of our time i'd like to wrap up for have both of you, uh, if you were, and you probably do, if you were mentoring someone in an SRE role in a K using someone utilizing chaos engineering or on that journey to, to bringing that into their organization, I I know it's always hard to boil it down to one thing, but you know, what, what is a a piece of advice or or learning that you would share to somebody who might be mentoring? Tammy, would you go first?
1: Um, I think like one of the things that I like to say when I'm mentoring folks is like, you know, what are your own personal goals? And if you imagine yourself in the future in like 10 years, like what do you want to be doing? And a lot of people, you know, they really want to be like the best engineer that they can be possibly. So it's like, what should I learn? How do I do that? And, you know, how do I share my ideas for what I would like to do? So a lot of it actually is like, I tell folks to focus on developing your communication skills, but also like just be super fun to work with, like bring joy to work, like make it engaging and exciting for everybody else, like share new things that you're learning and finding. And that just creates this awesome, like collaborative environment. So, you know, yes, like, you know, you need to learn your technical skills, but also there's all these other things that are going to really help you with your career, especially if you want to practice chaos engineering. Like I focus a lot on, how can I try and make chaos engineering inspiring and engaging? Because I think that's like, just makes work also more fun and great as well. And you get the results too. So it's like win-win, you know?
2: <laughs> you do that. You definitely do that. Just yeah. preparing You're for this, example of that. you know, going through the pantheon of stuff that was out there that Tammy put out there is really great. Um, speaking of um, the one bullet point I would say is own your own learning. Right. No, <laughs> I'm, I'm As much as we want, as much as we must push the response of certain responsibility of allowing us to have a knowledge and learning organization in companies, it's, it is the responsibility of the employer to, to properly coach and, and bring people up and learn. The fact is like, you're, you'll go from organization to organization. What stays the same is you, right? W- what you're responsible for is still you. And the number one thing that you can do is be responsible for your own learning. So, you know, read books. Uh, watch videos, like take time to do this, right? Even if it's a little bit of out of office stuff, definitely have a, a life separate from work, but find a way to carve some professional development time, either into your full-time job, if you have the luxury of that, if you have the right culture of that. And if you don't, you're still responsible for yourself. So find the time, the little bit of time, if you can, outside of that. Um, and and figure that out. It doesn't have to be hours a week. It can be a half hour a week. You know, it can be small bits. In that, speaking of, um, I think in the show notes we'll we'll be adding some links. Um, Tammy, you mentioned one link uh, to to a couple, a couple of links to the wiki stuff wiki, like that. Wiki, yeah.
0: um,
2: I sent over uh, the two links is bit.ly/chaosvideos and bit.ly slash chaos deck. The videos is to a video playlist that I put together um, of of meaningful things, some of which Tammy's in um, for this show. So if you want to learn more, if you want to, I mean, there's literally dozens of hours of video in total there, and you can kind of start small and figure out what works for you. Uh, The deck is also one of the things that I put together for one of the analysts. Um, Our approach is, you know, the the approach of chaos engineering and what are some of the factors that go into that journey and how to do, how to, how to start engaging people, right? Um, That's also there as well.
0: Wonderful. Go ahead, jump in there, Tammy.
1: Oh, just saying, that's awesome. Like, I find often folks say to me, How do I learn more? Where do I go? So, that's really cool that Paul's created these playlists. So, I definitely recommend checking that out. That's how I learn. I watch so many videos still, you know, on this exact topic. So, I'm continuously trying to grow myself. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I was just going to add one piece of advice I would offer is when someone offers you a resource, that means they've been through a lot of things, and this is the top create some of the cream of the crop, use it, take advantage of it. But why wouldn't you take advantage of all their time they've spent finding all those videos, pulling together those wikis, whatever it might be. Well, Tammy, Brian Bateau, and, and Paul Bruce, thank you to you both. Thank you to your organizations, uh, Gremlin and uh, Tricentis for having you with us today. Appreciate all your sharing. I know we could explore this a lot more and hopefully we'll get to do that in a future topic to you. So, thanks, everyone. And thanks, everybody, for joining us. Sure, and check out our next uh, DevOps Unbound and our DevOps
2: Unbound roundtables.
1: Thanks so much, Mitch. Thanks, Paul.
2: Thank you, Damon. Thank you, Mitch. All right, ciao.
1: Thanks, everyone.